Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, how many of you were here last week? All right, so you are here for the start of a new series. Pastor, Pastor Tom kicked off our study in the Gospel of Mark. We have never, this has never happened before, where we took a gospel and we preach through it. Now, we're not preaching, we're not going verse by verse, so we will skip around. If, if I went verse by verse, we'd be here forever. And some of you may go, well, I don't really mind, just, you know, preach through the book. So we'll really see. I don't normally, I have an idea, like Tom is preaching this in his church, uh, we'll preach this differently. Like, this is a, a message that he did not preach in his church. So this is something that I feel is important for us, a message that I feel is important for City on a Hill, a message that's important really for all Christians. But, so we went in, in different directions at times. This could go on forever. All right? And some of you are like, please, spare us. Well, hopefully you enjoy this. Let's just start off with a word of prayer. Lord, we just come before you. We come before your inerrant, infallible word. Lord, your word that has been priceless, a treasure beyond measure for centuries of people. Lord, ever since you sent your son, Lord, into this world, and he grew up and he became an itinerant preacher, Lord, he turned the world upside down. Lord, he called followers, his disciples, Lord, and then they took the message. And Lord, you put them like a fuse dipped in gasoline and you sent them out and there was an explosion and the world has never been the same. Lord, I thank you that we can have stories. Lord, we have your actual words. We have actual events that transpired. Lord, you are the master teacher. You're still teaching us today. Lord, I thank you. When I look at all the works, I look at Homer, I look at Shakespeare. Lord, I can read their works and we can study them, but only the word of God can be studied forever. Only the word of God has different truths. It doesn't matter if we read it 10 times, 50 times, or 1,000 times. So, Father, open our eyes today. Lord, the passage that we're going to look at, Lord, I ask that you would breathe new life into it. Father, I ask that when we, when things get tired and we come to church and we've heard all the stories, Lord, open our eyes and make things new, make things afresh. Do that for us this morning. Amen. So here we are. If you have your Bibles, we will not make it out of the first chapter. So we will be in the first chapter. Tom ended, he ended around verse 14. I will start at Jesus entering his ministry. So at the age of 30 years old, entering his Galilean ministry. So here he is, he comes on the scene and he's going to start teaching. But I just want to, for those people, I'll be very brief. But I would like to just say to you a couple of things maybe that you didn't hear last week or just stress some things that Tom did talk about, about this gospel, this book. Well, this is the shortest of all four of the gospels. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this one was written first. If you're wondering when this was written, we know scholars can ascertain that the uh, uh, apostle Peter, he was martyred in 64 A.D., so if Jesus died in 33 AD, this is 30 plus years after. So we know this book was written between 65, Peter is martyred in 64, between 65 and 75, most scholars will say this book was written. 
This book is not written to Jews. Let me say that again. This book was not written to Jews. It was written to Romans. It was written to Gentiles. It is written to people who do not know the gospel. So as we walk through, I want you to see and understand why does Mark take the time to explain and describe traditions or certain words? He does that because he's writing to a non-Jewish audience. Now, when you get into this book, too, if you haven't noticed this or never heard this, the Gospel of Mark, and I would say to you, people always say, well, what would, I, what would you recommend for somebody that's not a Christian? They've never read anything in the Bible. I would not p- point them to John. I would actually point them to Mark. And when, you, when I was in grad school, the first, the book, first class I had to take was we had to go through the Gospel of Mark, not the Gospel of John. It is the gospel of action. It is not like a dry story. You see Jesus is constantly moving. Jesus, we don't find as much teaching imbued in this book. It is more about Jesus in action. Did you know in the first chapter alone, get this, in the first chapter alone, the word immediately is used eight times. It is looking at Jesus as a master, the G- Jesus that is the king over everything. And if we break it down, I promise, I'm almost done giving you the background, but if you looked at it, the Gospel of Mark, this is the stuff I live for, it's broken up into basically two symmetrical parts. The first part over here, chapters 1 through 8, we're in chapter 1. He is king over all things. That's the main message. That is the thesis of those eight chapters. Then you go over here, as I knock the stand over, chapters 9 through 16... He is the suffering servant. It's Jesus on his way to the cross. Why the cross? So you put those together. It is the king in chapters 1 through 8, and then it's the cross. You put them together, it's the king's cross. That's what the gospel of Mark really is. And it moves at a brisk pace. And there's so much that we can look at. And here's where we will start. We will start in verse 16 of chapter 1. We're only going to get... Through chapter uh, verse 20 today. That's it. 16 through 20. I've only preached on this one other time. I preached on it when we were in the old building. Some of you, maybe some of you, will remember a piece of this. My sermon is very different from what I preached many years ago. Tom always yells at me. He's like, dude, people don't remember. You think they remember stuff from like a couple of years ago. They don't. So I usually have like a rule. If I haven't preached it in like a decade, then it's safe to pull something out again. So for some of you, as we get into this, you will find this, hopefully, you should find this astonishing. Now, I first learned of this from a a grad school professor, some of this. I made it my own in how I'm going to preach it, but the general idea, as, as I take you deep into Jewish culture, you should have a couple of moments today where you're like, whoa, I never knew that. That's really neat. So are you with me? Are you ready to roll? All right. You have your seatbelts on? All right. Here we go. Verse 16, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. 
How many of you, right, you've heard this passage how many times? hundred, you've read it, you know, maybe, maybe more than that. Maybe a thousand times you've read this in either the Gospel of Mark or you've read this in one of the other books. So what do we see here? We see Jesus, and what is Jesus basically doing? He's in recruitment mode. And in the original Greek, when it says there in the beginning, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, I want you to understand what this means is, literally is saying, he's literally just walking by. He did not have a set place or person he was looking to talk to, or a place that he's looking to go. He's just walking along the shore of Galilee. And he sees these guys as they're fishing. So that's one. Now, he is in recruitment mode, so he's going to put together a team of individuals. He's going to be drafting a team of individuals. And you would think, right, Jesus is coming here. You think he would build a cohort, right, of of, of spiritual ninjas, right? People that are going to be, A, you're going to be really smart. This is first century Palestine. So either he's going to find the brightest minds, and he's going to say, you know what, you're going to handle the logistics, And I would think he would want somebody that's kind of funny, right? When things get really difficult and very serious, you want somebody to lighten the mood, maybe like a Pastor Tom, somebody to lighten the mood. And then you're going to, of course, you're going to need other people, all different kinds, maybe like somebody with feats of strength, somebody that's really strong, physical prowess. You're going to want that type of person. So he's recruiting, putting a team together. And what does he do? Who does he choose? He chooses the unqualified. Chooses the unqualified. Many of you go, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a little bit of time. Not everyone has. And you may find that weird. You may look at that and go, unqualified? Didn't Peter turn the world upside down? Didn't James, John, all these guys, incredible exploits? And I would say, yeah, they did. But look at them. They're uncouth fishermen. How many of you know fishermen, right? You ever said uh, you were on a boat? I dated a girl, I remember. And I, I was out in the, uh, her father's boat. You know, he owned a boat, a fishing boat. And I was around a lot of these guys. You know what a lot of these guys are like and how they talk, maybe how they act. Not everybody. I'm making a generalization. If you're like a fisherman and you're like, that's not how I act. Okay, I'm just talking generally, all right? But I think we understand these are uncouth, uneducated fishermen. And in a world where the life expectancy was low, understand this. These guys are applying a trade. They're in a trade. They're, they're young enough here where... Their father is still with them. So Zebs is with them in the boat, right? He's with them. They're in the boat, but they're not old enough to take over the business. And I'll get to that in a little while because that's something that's easy to miss when you watch all the movies and you watch all of the, uh, you know, these pageants that we have about the Bible, about the story. And what I want you to know, please put this in your mind right now. Every single Jewish male, when you were growing up in this culture, in first century society, you know what you wanted to do? You didn't want to be a fisherman. You didn't want to work in whatever the family business was. You know what you wanted to be? You wanted to be a rabbi. This is real history. I'm giving you all real history today. You wanted to be a rabbi. You wanted to study. And the thing that was so important to a young Jewish boy growing up in society was the Torah. The Torah. The first five books of the Jewish Bible, Genesis, Exodus, yes, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. But they wouldn't just want to study that. They would want to study the whole Jewish scripture. And that would be called the Tanakh. Can you say that with me? Yeah, yeah, like the Tanakh. The Tanakh in Hebrew, that is, the, that is 24 books 
still today, 24 books that make up the Jewish scriptures. And they loved and, and revered the scriptures, the holy scriptures. So they lived in a world where this was so important to them. This is what distinguished them. You have to see this. Their, their uh, economic wealth, that, that, that didn't distinguish them. Their military might, that didn't distinguish them. What distinguished them, as one rabbi said, they were a people of the book. You with me? They were a people of the book. Josephus, the first century historian, put it like this. Above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. The world subsists through the breath of school children. They lived for this. Every young kid, this is what they lived for. They wanted to study the Torah. They wanted to know God's word. They wanted to know God. They wanted to experience God. And in their school system, here's where I'm going to take you in, right? You have to stay with this in order to get the aha moment. When you look at their education system, can I take you to the first stage for a young kid? The name of this is Bet Sefer. Everybody say Bet Sefer. All right, Bet Sefer is what is in Hebrew is the house of the book. Every single young boy, Jewish boy, between the ages of 6 and 10 years old, they would enter in their local synagogue what was known as Bet Sefer. Jesus did this. Let you get, you're going to get goosebumps at times, at least I do when I think about it. This is what Jesus did. This is the tradition he was steeped in. So a young boy at six years old, you would go to your local synagogue. When we were in Israel last summer, it was crazy. Even though it was 120 degrees in Capernaum, we were there and we're in the general area where, where scholars, where archaeologists say the synagogue was in this area. And I'm sitting there going, this is blowing my mind that this was a place where young boys would come in and they would sit and they would study the Torah. And I've said this to you before, but it bears repeating. The local rabbi there in the synagogue, they would take honey and they would put it on a plate. That was the first thing they did when a kid was six years old. You walked in, they take the honey, they put it on a plate. And they said, they, they told the kids, put the honey on your finger, taste the honey. May you never forget that the word of God is as sweet as honey. That was their first experience with the word, that it was tactile, it was experiential, it wasn't just here, it wasn't up in your mind, it was how do we take the word of God and move it into our hearts. So from this, from this in Beth Sefer, many kids would fail out. They had to memorize the Torah. You had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Are you kidding? I don't have the, I'm a preacher. What the school, I don't have the first five books of the Bible memorized. I don't think any of you here have the first five books of the Bible memorized. But it was a different world, a different culture, a totally different place. But that's what these kids did. They memorized it. And many of the kids, you know, if they weren't the best of the best in this class, they washed out. And there wasn't anything wrong with that. The rabbi would say, you go home and study Torah, and you get married one day, and you teach your kids to love and obey Torah. You with me? All right. The kids that would move on from there, it was called Bet Talmud. Say Bet Talmud. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep you awake. All right. The house of learning. So from ages from 10 to 14, kids would go into this. Now, here's what they did in the second stage. You ready for this? You ready? You had to memorize the rest of the Jewish scriptures. All 24 books would be memorized. Ah! Are you kidding me? 
The whole Old Testament you had to memorize. And I know what some of you in here are saying, are you kidding me? How could a 12, 13-year-old kid memorize that? And I would say to you, I'm a teacher in a school. I'm with high school kids, but I've seen plenty of kids. They know all the lyrics to Drake songs, and they know all the lyrics to, like, Katy Perry songs, and they can do all that stuff. Hey, listen, my six-year-old, right, my wife and I, we're big Hamilton fans, and she got him into trying to memorize. It was a talent show at school, and we're trying, like, just memorize one of the songs. Come on, get up there. You can do it. He didn't want to do it, but he knows more of the words than I do to these songs. He's six. So don't you tell me. It was a different world. We, they stress different things than we do. We don't stress the word enough. We don't. They lived in a world, this is what they lived for. This is what Jesus lived, this is the world he came to. This is why he came to first century Palestine. This was the culture. So that's number two. Now also, I could say this to you. Remember Jesus is in the, this is a cool story. I'm going to digress a little bit here. We'll have a little fun. Remember when Jesus was in, you know, uh, he's in the temple area. His parents actually lose him. Remember that? All right. So they're leaving Jerusalem. Now, stop for a second. What was that moment like for Joseph and Mary? They've just lost the Son of God. No, no, really, this really happened. They didn't know where he was. And I see Joseph, like, kind of there, and I see him being the one to, come here, Mary, let's, let's pray. Oh, God, for, forgiving God. Um, Lord, I know you gave us the Messiah, Lord, this Messiah, do you have any other Messiahs around? We've lost the one that you gave us. Are you kidding me? All right, God, God, I get it, I get it. But please help us find him. And they eventually find him. Where do they find him? He's in the temple area. And what is he doing? He is conversing with the other teachers of the law, the Pharisees. What is he doing? He's giving it to them. He is in Beth Talmud. Should blow your mind. This is, he's in this system. He is there. They're asking him questions. He's going back at them. They're going back and forth, and they're like, "Who is this twelve-year-old kid that knows the word of God like this? This is not normal." That's two. You ready for number? All right. Now, I have to. I have to. Let me do it. Let me do it. I'm going to go there. What was it like? Thinking about this all week. What was it like to be Jesus's siblings? Did you ever think about this? Now, listen. The Bible tells us, he, I never talked about this before, but I'm like, I could, all, all week, I'm like, what was it like? He had, the Bible tells us he had four brothers. We don't know how many sisters. He had sisters. Can you imagine the pressure on a kid to be Jesus' sibling? Imagine Mary and Joseph, like to James, his younger brother, right? And then James in the New Testament, not this James, this Ebony, right? Why can't you be like your brother? You do something wrong. Why can't you be like Jesus? Imagine what it was like, really. I mean, if there's Jesus Christ, and then there's James. It's like James Christ, the Jesus Christ, and then it was James. They, oh, they didn't have any other names. What was it like at dinner time? What was it like at dinner time when they would pray in Jesus' name? What about all the other siblings? Hey, Mom, you think we can pray in James' name tonight? Sorry, honey, he's the Messiah. You're not. What was it like when they had the wedding feast? I was thinking about Cana. Remember at Cana? And he turns the water into wine. Right? You remember that? Everyone's with me? 
right? Turns the water into wine. Jesus is like a hero. Everyone's happy. They're all excited. Well, what was it like? The Bible doesn't record. What was the second wedding feast like? Because I picture Jesus having to leave early. He had things to do. He had to heal people. There were other things he had to do. And the people that are there at the wedding, the bride and the groom, they're going, hey, listen, use the best wine first. That's fine. If we run out, don't worry. Jesus will take care of it. Jesus isn't there, though. And then they run out of wine. They're like, where's, where's James? And then here comes James on the scene, right? And they're like, hey, hey, dude, can you turn um, the water into wine just like your brother did? Imagine being him like, dude, what do you want? Turn water into wine. I'm not my brother. I can't do that. You're kidding me? What was it like for him growing up? Because I think about it. I have an older brother, right? You always want to do what your older brother does. You with, you're asleep today. I think some of this stuff's funny. You, you always want to do what your older brother does, right? I think his siblings got in trouble sometimes. Man, I have to imagine there was at least a time when James almost drowned, right? Trying to do exactly what his brother did. Oh, some of you, some of you got it, like Jesus walking on water, right? Some of you, yeah. But really, what was it like for his siblings to be with him studying at this time? And he knows everything. He's 12 years old. He understands the whole Bible, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. They don't understand everything the way he does. And then his parents are looking at him. What was it like for Mary and Joseph to raise Jesus? You probably don't think about these questions. These are the things I think about all the time, as pathetic as that may sound to you. What was it like for him? And then you move on from there, right? You with me? Move on from there, and here is the last stage. Bet Midrash. Say Bet Midrash. All right. Bet Midrash. 15 up, the house of study. This is the point for a Jewish young person. If you flunked out, if you washed out of the uh, uh, prior school, Bet Talmud, you went back and did the family business, but there were a few, the best of the best. And I was thinking, what is it akin to? This is like in our culture today, kids that get accepted into Harvard, or they go to Yale, or they go to really prestigious schools, right? That's what this would be like. These are the kids that would move forward, and they had to make a decision. You see, in this world, in this culture, they had to decide which rabbi they wanted to study under. You with me? Rabbis never recruited their disciples. Disciples always had to go after their teachers. You wanted to go after a teacher, and you said, that one has, in Hebrew, it's called Shemiha. That one has authority. I wanted to study under them. And you know what the rabbi would do? Oh, so you would like to study under me. Great. We're going to have some spiritual kung fu, little contest. And this is what they would do. The rabbi which I'll put it like this. This is the way you'll understand it. The rabbi would say, two plus two equals, and you would know, class, the answer is four, right? But that's not the way you would respond back. You would have to respond back. 16, I'm not, I don't teach math. 16 divided by four equals, that's how you had to respond back. You never were asked, it wasn't just, can you tell me what it says in Psalm 25? No, 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 no. They would ask you something, and you would be expected to know everything else that was around it. Now, now I'm going to go a little bit deeper. I, I, I would vacillate it back and forth. Do I do this? I'm doing it. They were called, later on, they were called what are known as remezes. If you take notes, it's R-E-M-E-Z, a remez. And Jewish rabbis, they would 
Talk about a scripture or a verse, and I'm going to give you a good example of what Jesus does. Scholars say that Jesus may have had, in the scriptures, in the gospels, we may have about 20 examples of what are known as remezes. What's a remez? The, fa- the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, quotes the scripture. He's actually quoting something that is around that passage or that verse. You with me? He is expecting that the person that he's talking to should be able to deduce from what he said what he really means. You with me? Okay, here's an example. All right. If it goes, and it doesn't want to go. Paul, you can hit it. I don't know. The next, the next uh, slide, please. There we go. In Matthew 21, this is one of them, all right? When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise, right? Why? Do you ever notice when you're reading the Bible, why do the Pharisees lose their minds all the time? Why do they get so upset? Why do they want to kill Jesus? You know why they want to kill Jesus? Because a lot of times he was saying things that you can't understand when you're just reading the text. He's actually quoting from here, Psalm 8-2. And what he's really saying is, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise, right? This is the real part. He's saying to them, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. He's calling the Pharisees out, and he's saying to them, you are the enemies of God. I came to teach today. He is the master teacher. Jesus was the master teacher. Real history. Wake up. You want to know the word? You want to get into the word? This is what we should be living for. He came to teach. He put the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other teachers in their place. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. Nobody taught with the authority that Jesus Christ did because he indeed was the son of God. And he said, look, this is who I am. He wasn't Mr. Rogers when he came to earth. He had fire in his eyes, and he was resolute, and he came walking, and he said, I'm a man on a mission, and I'm moving forward, and I'm going to turn the world upside down, and you followers, you may look like a motley crew, a ragtag crew, but I'm going to use you. You with me? Oh, this is fun. I'm not done yet. Did you ever notice... Did you ever find it weird that when the disciples, like in the beginning, they just dropped their nets. They just dropped their nets. Matthew, the tax collector in chapter 2, he just leaves his tax booth. He's making a lot of money. He just leaves his tax booth. These guys are mending their nets. They leave their father, and they just kind of walk away. How many of you have read that and go, it's so abrupt. Who would do that? Why would somebody just leave what they're doing? These were successful fishermen, by the way. I don't have time to get into all of it. James and John, sons of Zebs, they're successful. Andrew, Peter, very successful fishermen. These weren't just like, whatever, guys that are just trying to make it. No, no, they had flourishing businesses. And these guys, what's wild to me, when you study this, they just drop their nets. It's almost as if like James and John are in the boat, and their dad's on the other side of the boat. and like, Dad, Zebs, hey, Zebs, see the guy on the shore over there in the sandals? Yeah, we're going to go follow him. Peace out. See ya. We're gone. Give mom our, you know, our best. We love her. We love you. Hey, have fun. Like, figure it out. The fishing business. And they leave. Right? 
I always looked at this passage, and I'm always like, you know what the next verse should be? You know what the next verse should be? And Zebedee filed chapter 11. <laughs> right? He goes bankrupt. I always read this like, what's wrong with these guys? Why do these, how could these guys just leave their father like this? How is their father going to survive? Yeah, he has other servants, but these are his boys. And they're just going to leave, and they're just going to go with this rabbi? They don't know a heck of a lot about the guy. Oh, things should start coming into focus now. Next, you should also see and understand. You know what kills me? Do you ever see, like, and the movies do this, right? Do you ever notice how old the disciples look in the movie? Movies, right? And they have, like, the leg hair coming out from the robes and the facial hair. They look like they're, like, 40 years old. Mark is trying to tell us the fact that Zebs is in the boat with them means... They're probably high school juniors or seniors. They're not old enough to take over the family business. These were young men. They're not older. How come we do a disservice? How come this is stuff that should be written in books? Why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about it more? Get a movie. Get it right. These guys were young. And here they are, and they're willing to leave everything. And what does this say? Now, this is one of the aha moments. What does this mean for us, friends? What does this mean for you? This should change how you look at this passage for the rest of your life. Because the fact that they dropped their nets and followed Rabbi Yeshua means they washed out of rabbi school. And a rabbi came along the shore of Galilee one day and he said, I believe in you. Where in that society, you went after the teacher. Jesus flipped it on its head and said, oh, you're the ones that nobody wants. I'm going to make a dream team. And guess what? I want you, the uncouth fisherman. I want you, the tax collector. I want everybody, the people in society that are marginalized, the people that are excluded. Oh, I'll take women too. I'll take all of you. And you will be the group that I use. You will be the ones that I will ignite, that I will dip in gasoline, and you will go out and you will explode and rock this world and change it. And what was it like, friends, what was it like for Zebedee when he went home that night? I always had the picture before I had the professor explain this. Then I got into, I'm thinking about this father and I'm going, at first I was like, well, it must have been so hard for him, his boys, right? That they're, they're gone. They're not going to be around anymore. No, no, no. I see Zebedee skipping home, kind of moving home, and he's out of breath when he gets to the front door, and he goes in. And I see his wife. She, her name's probably Mary, because over 50% of all the women in that culture, their name was Mary, right? So I see him, and she's like, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? Where are the boys? Where are James and John? Is something wrong? Is something wrong? And I see this guy go, you wouldn't believe it, and he's sweating profusely, and he looks at her, and he says, Mary, you don't understand what happened today. Today is one of the greatest days of our lives. There was a rabbi who came and who thinks that our boys have what it takes to study under him because that's what every single kid wanted to do. You wanted to study under a rabbi and not only are they studying under any rabbi, they're studying under Jesus. Do you see what this is like? Oh my gosh, this is like, how do I put it? I'm watching the NBA finals for the first time since the Knicks played. In the, well, that's, like, that's like OJ, that's like in the 90s when OJ was on trial. Knicks are terrible. 
I love Steph Curry. How many of you, right? I'll be watching that game tonight. I'll stay up late. Steph Curry, and why do I watch him? Because he's a real Christian, by the way. You parents, he's not just some guy, yeah, I just want to thank God for giving me all this talent. He's a real Christian, real deal Christian, how he lives his life. So I'm watching him. It would be like Steph Curry saying to somebody in the stands tonight, hey, you know what? Hey, Clay Thompson, one of his partners, like Splash Brother, hey, I love this. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, why don't you sit down, Clay, tonight? I'm going to have this dude right here. I think he has what it takes to play with us tonight. That's what this is like. This is like Lin-Manuel Miranda in Hamilton saying to Megan, oh, Mrs. Lecce, I believe you have what it takes to play in this show tonight, Hamilton, and then she would be in her glory and we'd never hear the end of it. But that's what this is like. Or Bono. I'm a big Bono fan. This is like Bono saying, yo, you can play with us tonight. Steve, the rest of the music people, come play with us tonight. We, we think you have what it takes. You getting it yet? That's what, this is. that's what the message of this is. Do you see why I couldn't go past this? Do you see why I had to teach this this morning? Yeah, some of you are like, no, but maybe you'll get it one day. <laughs> he didn't cherry pick the brightest kids to create this dream team. He didn't take kids from other rabbis. Isn't that amazing? You would think that's probably what he would have done. He took the leftovers. I had a, I had a, a guy uh, come speak to my kids this week. He's success, kind of successful in the, in the business world. And uh, he spoke to my kids, and he was talking to the kids, first of all, about his education when he was like in high school. And he's like, ah, whatever. I cared more about ball and other things. Like, I didn't care a heck of a lot about school. And he's going on talking about C students. A lot of times, looking for C students, not the A student, not the B student, but a lot of times they make the best employees. Kind of weird. We live in a world where everyone says it's the A student. It's the one that is the best and the one that is the brightest, the one that sings the best, who can speak the best. And Jesus says, man, you have it wrong. I can use anybody, anybody. He shames the wise. He uses the weak things of this world. Right? That's what he does. And we try to figure everything out. I do this all the time. We try to figure everything out. And here is this group. What did they do? Their resumes didn't look good. If we took their IQs, I'm sure they weren't that high. But they were the ones that changed the world. And when he said, follow me, they dropped their nets and they followed him because they saw somebody, a rabbi, who believed that they could actually become like him. Do you see that? And they called it, they said, and this is a saying from the ancient world, you wanted to walk in the dust of your rabbi. You wanted to walk in the dust of your rabbi, meaning you wanted to follow the rabbi wherever they went. Did you know there are actually prayers that a student that was in the last school there, and you wanted to become a rabbi yourself, there were prayers for them even when they went in bathrooms. Maybe there's a secret prayer that they say when they go to the bathroom, and there are, but I wasn't going to gross you out and show you any of those, but they really do exist. Everywhere the rabbi went, the student went with them. Every single place. You wanted to know, you wanted to see, you wanted to truly understand everything about them. You with me? Reminds me of a story. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the name Antonio Stradivari? Know the name, Antonio Stradivari. Good, I'm impressed, a lot of you, impressed. Antonio Stradivari, here's a picture. He handcrafted and developed what are known as the finest violins in the world. The finest. They are called Stradivarius, Latinized uh, 
uh, a form of his name, Stradivari, that's where it comes from, the Stradivarius, there are only a few hundred left on the planet today. They have gone under incredible scrutiny, scientific scrutiny. They've tried to figure out, they've tried to replicate the sound that comes from a Stradivarius violin, and they have been unsuccessful. The last Stradivarius that was sold was sold in 2010. You want to know how much it was sold for? $3.6 million. Today, this guy lived, I should tell you this, he lived in the late 16s, early 1700s. They cannot replicate the sound that this guy would make. And they've tried everything. This guy used weird, he used honey, egg whites. I'm reading up, I'm going, how did this guy like figure all this out? He was an absolute master. But why do I tell you this? I tell you this because one of the interesting things about him is he never wrote a manual. He never had a book of steps of how to create a Stradivarius violin. And this is what he called it. This is what one scholar called it. They said the scholar called it elbow learning. I love this. Elbow learning by sitting at his elbow, his apprentices, and feeling the wood as he felt it to assess its length, its balance, and its timber right there in their fingertips. All the learning happened at his elbow, and all the knowledge was contained in his fingers. Individuals, his apprentices, would sit with him. He would guide them. They would feel what he felt. They would feel the wood. He would guide them to give them an understanding. Do you understand that's what Jesus is looking for when it comes to disciples? He's looking for people that will sit at his feet. James, John, Andrew, Peter, they sat at his feet, and he's still, still looking today for people that will sit at his feet. He says, if you come follow me, You will learn how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. You will change the world one person at a time. But he says, listen, you follow me. And listen, you then will go out and become fishers of men. Did you hear that when he said that earlier? You will go out and become fishers of men. How are we doing in that respect? Did you know there's a lot of people out there that we should be fishing for? A lot of people. Did you know that yesterday there was a huge gathering, Lincoln Memorial? How many of you knew this? Washington, D.C. This was the Reason Rally. Atheists from around the country gathered. Bill Nye, the science guy, Gillette Penn, other, the foremost atheists in the country. They gathered at the Lincoln Memorial, and they were there. They expected 30,000. They got really a sparse attendance. But still, a lot of people were there, and CNN went on to say... In a recent poll, they said that one quarter of all Americans are now atheists. One quarter. I just say that because we live in a world we're supposed to go out there and bring the gospel to people. And I said it two weeks ago. I'm not stopping. I'm kind of picking up where I left off on two, uh, last, uh, two weeks ago. We're not supposed to beat people over the head with the gospel. We are to love people. We are to learn from those people that are not Christians. But we are to serve them. And so many people think, man, I'm the uber Christian. I would say you're not Christian enough. You're not fanatical enough when it comes to serving people. Not enough. It's the people that have all this knowledge and they try to beat people over the heads with it. It doesn't do anything. We have to love people that are far from God. We're not better than they are. We're not to judge them. We're just to say, for us, we found that this is real. We found that this life-transforming, transformative power that Jesus gives can be yours. And it's made a difference in my life. John Maxwell, in terms of this, gives a goofy story. How many of you know who John Maxwell is? He's a a business guy, a Christian author, 
Well, he, ter- he tells this kind of goofy story. He says there's a, uh, there's a guy about this offer, about fishing for men. There's a guy in a small town. He's an incredible fisherman. And uh, he has his boat, and he's hanging out at his boat one day. And some stranger just walks up to him. And the guy says, hey, I heard you're, you know, quite the fisherman. Is there any chance that I could head out with you, you know, on your boat? I'd love to go out and, you know, check things out with you, maybe learn from you. The guy says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Tomorrow morning at 5 a.m., I want you to come to this boat, and we're going to head out. He says, all right. Shows up at the boat at 5 a.m. They take off. Now, it's kind of weird because the stranger, the guy that is looking to learn from this guy, thinks it's bizarre. The guy has no rods in his boat. No fishing rods. So he stops at a point, and he's like, this is going to be good. Where is this? Is he fishing rods hidden somewhere? Guy stops the boat, takes this big tackle box out, puts it on the counter, opens it up, takes out a stick of dynamite, takes out a match, whoosh, lights the dynamite, says, cover your ears, throws it into the water, boom, boom, right? There's a huge explosion. All these dead fish rise to the surface. There he is, right? Goes over. He has a net, and he starts scooping the fish out. He's putting them in the boat. And the guy then pulls out a badge, and he says, I'm the game warden. You're under arrest. What the heck are you doing? The man calmly goes over to the tackle box again, pulls out another stick of dynamite, lights it, looks at the game warden, and says, all right, pal, what are you going to do? Just stand there, or are you going to fish? <laughs> kind of goofy. The point is, some of you didn't get it, you'll get it later. <laughs> the point is, why am I telling you that story? Because when Jesus came, he had something that was so explosive. He had dynamite. That's what the gospel is. Do you realize that this is dynamite? Do you realize this is real dynamite? Dynamite. And he gives them dynamite and says, look, you're going to go out and you're inadequate. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Stop trying to think that if you talk a certain way, if you look a certain way, that you're going to change people. You go out. I'm giving you dynamite. This has real power. You go take this to people out into a dark world, an unbelieving world, and you see what happens when the spirit of the living God is used and lives through you because it's imbued in you. And as that power comes out, you see what happens as it changes the world. And so here are these guys, right? They go out. They follow him. And he doesn't say, you know what he doesn't say? I was thinking about it. He doesn't say, you'll be okay, you'll be safe if you follow me. Come with me, Andrew, I'll make you safe, I'll keep you safe. Oh, James, don't worry, Debs, I'll take care of them. He doesn't say that. He says, if you follow me, this will be the ride of a lifetime. That you'll learn how to love God in a way that you never knew before. You'll learn how to serve people in a way that maybe you didn't know before. But there's something that I want to do in and through you. Can I close with, as we come to the table, can I close with one more story? This is my all-time favorite fishing story. And for those of you that don't know me well, I'm kind of like this guy. This is from a guy called Dan Allender. So I tried to memorize the story and and tell it this way. Instead of reading it to you, I think it'll be a little bit more powerful. Dan Allender is a a Christian psychologist, one of my favorite authors. Like, I put him him up there with Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And uh, many of you probably, if you've read them, you'd like Allender. So Allender talks about a few years ago, he's at a uh, Christian conference in Montana. And Montana just happens to be the fly fishing mecca, right? Cap- of, of, the, of the, not the world, I guess, but of the United States. That's what they say, right? So here is this guy, he's at a Christian conference, and he says, you know what, I, I got to do some fly fishing while I'm out here. Well, he goes out one day, it's dusk, 
goes out, has all of his gear on, gets everything all set up. There he is. He's got his rod. He's throwing, casting into the water, trying to figure it out. Nothing. No bites. Nothing is nibbling. Keeps going, right? Keeps going. Eventually, right, it's getting really dark, but he sees like, he's, he, it shocks him. He says it's so beautiful. He looks at the mountains and the water. It's gorgeous. And he sees what he thinks are birds, and they're flying around all over the place. And he says, listen, I didn't study ornithology. I didn't really know much about birds. But aren't birds supposed to be sleeping right now? Isn't it their bedtime? And then it hits them. These are not birds. These are bats. And the bats are flying. And then the bats start to fly at him. Now, with that, Allender says... He takes his pole and he creates a no-fly zone, right? And he starts waving his pole and the bats, one bat is coming right at him. And he takes his pole and he hits the bat and he knocks it into the water. And he stuns the bat and the bat gets up though and comes at him again. And he repeatedly hits the bat and he says, yes, I killed one of God's creatures. Well, right after that, at that moment, he takes the pole and it's back in the water. And you wouldn't believe it. But a fish actually bites, right? So he feels the fish on his pole. And he, at this point, he's like, I don't even want to catch a fish. I just want to get out of the water. There are bats all over the place. So he starts, you know, reeling the rod in. And then he realizes as the fish is coming out of the water, he's like, that is one of the grossest fish I have ever seen in my life. With its, he says, in the, his big, gray, devilish teeth. And he says, I don't even want to catch it. I'm not an outdoors guy. I don't want to touch it with my hands. He starts waving the pole all over the place. The fish's mouth separates from its body. And the fish's body falls into the water. And he's left on the pole. You see the fish's little mouth. He is mortified at this point. He's getting out of the water. He's like, I got to get out of here. He gets out of the water. He walks towards the end of a dock. You can start playing. He walks towards the You want to hear the story, you can listen to it. It's fine. He walks towards the end of the dock, and there is an old man sitting there. And the old man looks at him, and he says, Son, I've been fishing for 50 years. I ain't ever seen anything like that. He goes, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks him. Because he said it was so funny to watch, right? So the story's not over. The next day, Allender, his wife and son, they flew in. And his son, all the kid wanted to do after the conference was to go fishing. So Allender... Every single day, for three days straight, he would go out at lunchtime. So lunch would be end at like 12 o'clock, like 12.30. He'd go out from 12.30 to 3 o'clock every single day with his son, his 12-year-old son, Andrew. Fisherman, Andrew. He'd go out with his son, and they would go fly fishing. So there they are. They're fishing. First day, nothing, right? The second day, nothing again. The third day comes, nothing And they're dejected, they're despondent, they leave the water, and then there's the old man again. He's at the end of the dock. He looks at him and he says, hey, you want to catch a fish for your son? He's like, yeah, of course I do. And he says, did you know that fish don't bite between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock, that you need to come at dawn or dusk? And he said, no, I I didn't know that. He goes, all right, here's what you're going to do. Tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock, you're going to show up here and you're going to catch your son a fish. So there they are, right? I show up at 5 o'clock. They wade out into the water. I don't know all the techniques, Steve, so don't, you can correct me later. 
They get out into the water, right? They're out there, and they're, they're casting, and they're casting. And the father realizes, Dan realizes, man, this is not going well. And my son really wants to catch a fish pretty bad. And he's praying. He's like, God, are you kidding me? Right? You've got to let him catch a fish before we get out. I'm never going to hear the end of it. So the cat, and he says, all right, son, one more cast. And then we got, we got to go. I got to go to the meeting. Son says, come on, dad, really? And he said, something hit him inside. And he said, you know what? This is crazy. He said, you know what, son? No, no, no. You don't have one more cast. You have five more casts. So there the son goes, one, nothing. Two, nothing. Three, nothing. Four, nothing. Five, gets a bite. Pulls the fish in, right? And he looks up at his dad. He says, dad, isn't God awesome? Now, Allender at this point is very taken back because he said, he says in the book, my son never talked this way before. And he said, yes, yeah, son, you know what? He really is. And he says to his dad, I, have, I think I know his name. He's, he's very excited, very interested. What is it, son? I think he's the God of the fifth cast. You know what? He really is the God of the fifth cast. I know for me, so many times, I feel inadequate. And I go out and I cast and I cast and I cast, and I cast, and I'm, Jesus, I'm following you. And he says, just keep going. Just be obedient. You keep casting. There is a world out there that needs to know me. You have to believe. You have to have faith. And if you don't have it, just pray for that faith. Pray that I can move. Pray that I can move on people's hearts. Pray that I can move on people's minds. He is, friends, the God of the fifth cast. And I ask you today, what is stopping you? Maybe you're in eternal office space. Maybe you own your own business. Maybe you're in a classroom. You're a teacher. I don't know. Whatever it is. You're a lawyer. I don't know. Whatever it is you do, what is stopping you from actually bringing the gospel and casting it out there in a loving way? What is stopping you from believing? There are so many people, when you die one day, I guarantee it, all of us are going to have regrets that we didn't share the realness. We didn't share the gospel with people more. You're never going to go, man, I wish I, wish I shared it less. It's going to be, why didn't I share it more? Why didn't I believe, God, that you could really move? Why didn't I believe that people really are far and they're looking and they're searching? I have a friend at work that seems so far from God, and I had a conversation with him this week, and he's, he's gotten sick. And he really doesn't feel well. And for the first time, the cracks are there. The wall is finally starting to come down a little bit. And I'm just waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the time and the opportunity that I can go in and be led by God's spirit and go in and just say, look, man, this is real. This is what's going on. Dude, you know. I'm waiting. How about you? We come to this table. We come to this table. As I said, he's looking for people that will really follow him. He's looking for elbow learning. Do you want to learn from the rabbi? I know what, you know what our culture says too? Our culture says, don't be too fanatical. I took my kids to the World Trade Center Museum this week. And as I was in there and I'm looking, for some reason I was so drawn to the terrorists this year. I just looked at them going through security and I looked at their faces and I thought about our world and how we don't like people that are fanatical. Do you know the world... This generation, the generation that I teach, this generation Z, 
they don't like people that are fanatical about religion at all. They've seen what religion has done. And I think for many of us, we say, well, I don't want to be a fanatical Christian. And then we see people on the other side and we say, you know what, maybe they know the scriptures. Well, they, they're nominal believers. They come to church once in a while. Can't we just do moderation in all things? The only problem is Jesus never said anything about moderation in all things. Jesus didn't call some people. He called all people. And he says, everybody is to come and be my disciple. Everyone is to come and to learn, elbow learning, to get down deep with the rabbi. How are you doing in that respect? How are you doing sitting at the rabbi's feet? Lord, I thank you that there's real power in communion this morning. Father, I thank you that it's not too late. I thank you that there's still time. I thank you that you're still walking around today here. You're in Middle Island, New York, right here, right now. You're walking by because, Lord, your presence is everywhere. Everywhere he goes, David says, he could make his bed in the gates of hell, Lord, and you are still there. Your presence is everywhere. So, Father, I ask, as you're walking by seats right now, as people come up to take communion, Lord, I ask that they would see and touch you in a new way. Father, when maybe they said, you know what, I did follow you at one time and I made a decision, I said a prayer, Lord, Christianity is much more than that. It's about a real relationship, an offer. Lord, we don't have to strive and climb. So many religions say climb, climb, climb and get to God. Do all the right things. Be Moral rectitude, no. And you say, you don't have to climb. Stop climbing. It's all about grace. That's why we can look at people that are far from you and know that you can minister to them. us, Lord. Change our hearts. Make us want more of you. Father, as I leave here today as your speaker, Father, I ask that my feeble words will make even just one person in this house want to know you more and follow hard after you. Lord, I thank you that you were an incredible teacher. I thank you for the education system. Lord, I thank you that we can study this and know this and understand you a little bit more, infinitesimal more, a piece more about you. Father, it'll take eternity to fully understand you. No, even eternity will not be enough. I thank you, Lord. But I ask that everybody leaves here today knowing you a little more, their relationship with you is a little richer than it was when they were. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.